Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Now, normally on this show, I don't really interview or talk to people about medication and anxiety because, I mean, I mean, I think we all know there's your Valiums and your Clonopins and your Ativan and your Xanax and your antidepressants. I mean, and all of that is up to your discretion and you and your doctor and all that, we know they're there. But there are some newer treatments for anxiety or treatments that are not new in and of themselves, but to the anxiety world. One of them is ketamine. And I wanted to talk to someone about it who was really serious, if that makes sense. I mean, I could have done this episode a lot sooner if I wanted to talk to some of the people that have contacted me that are a little more loosey-goosey with their... um, doling out of ketamine and the way they talk about it as this kind of cure-all. And so I've been putting off doing this episode until I got who I think is really the right person to talk to about it. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Robert Meisner. I'm, I'm just going to 
get right into it. I, I won't do too much talking up front here, a, a minute or two more. What I loved about talking to, to Dr. Meisner is he wanted to go through at the beginning of the conversation, what is anxiety? What's happening in our body? What are some things we can do that aren't medication to deal with it? And, you know, I had told him, well, you know, there's been 20 something episodes of this podcast and we know that and we we've talked about that. But I realized what he was saying was was correct, because if you're just coming to this episode because of the word ketamine, you you need to hear it from him that the good news is, I guess, and maybe it's bad news to some who just do want to believe in a miracle drug, but the good news is that everything you're probably doing already or know about doing mindfulness, cognitive behavior therapy, is really going to help your anxiety. But there are circumstances where ketamine, which is normally used for depression, has been showing some results with anxiety, but everybody's different. And the goal is not to cure anxiety, but maybe to get your brain to a place enough where you are able to get benefits from the mindfulness and the cognitive behavior therapy. So it's kind of all roads seem to keep leading back to that anxiety is something that we do have within our control to lessen. But I don't know, for some people, maybe that's going to be a disappointment that there isn't this magic thing called ketamine. But I'll let you all listen and decide for yourselves. But I enjoyed that Dr. Meisner took us through, like, let's just start at the beginning. What is anxiety? What's happening in our body? What's happening in our brain? How is it fed with our thought patterns and our behaviors? How can we minimize anxiety? And eventually, if you think ketamine is something you want to try, what, what actually is it? What is the drug? What are the treatments like? And what is the entire process of knowing if it's working? How long do you do it? What happens when you go into the clinic? You will get all of those answers. And I'm so grateful for uh, Dr. Meisner taking the time to do this show and really giving a lot of care and thought to this. Now, um, let me just read you his bio and then we'll get right into the episode. And again, the uh, links to everything you need to know about him will be in the show notes. But Robert Meisner, MD, is the founding medical director of the McLean Ketamine Service and a child and adult attending psychiatrist in the emergency department at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Meisner graduated from Princeton, summa cum laude, before entering doctoral studies in cultural anthropology at the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Following preliminary fieldwork in war-torn Uganda, he graduated from Harvard Medical School and then pursued residency training in anesthesia, critical care, and pain to study, oh boy, this word is <laughs> epistemological tensions in contested notions of pain across both geographic and disciplinary boundaries. He transferred into psychiatry to more directly engage the ideologic and semiotic tensions between sociocultural and subspecialized biomedical conceptions of, quote, suffering. He now works at the intersection of different disciplines to safely bring evolving pipeline interventions into clinical practice through evidence-based 
data-driven translational medicine. Meisner has previously held appointments in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, where he served as an acting residential dean at Harvard College and as a member of Harvard College's administrative board. He has consulted to approved industry pharmaceutical neuroscience leaders in pipeline clinical translation and currently serves as the co-chair for the National Network of Depression Centers. Ketamine Task Force, as well as the Chief Financial Officer for Mangata Inc., he continues to prioritize the dissemination of evidence-based quality information regarding emerging therapies through collaboration with national and international media. Again, I am really grateful to Dr. Meisner for taking the time to talk to us all today. I hope you learn a lot and find it to be a fascinating and fun conversation. And now, my conversation with Dr. Meisner. I'm here with Dr. Robert Meisner, and I've told you all about him in the intro. And you wanted to talk at the top of the episode, which I think is brilliant, about anxiety, because, I mean, obviously it's an anxiety podcast, but because we are going to mention and talk about depression as it pertains to ketamine treatments. And you wanted to talk about why we really need to just pause for a moment, think about, talk about why anxiety is unique. And you can't really just cluster it all together with depression. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, Jen, because um, I think that we need to, whenever we have a serious discussion about anxiety, we got to blow up the idea of anxiety and deconstruct it a little bit because we use the word so much. Um, we're starting to forget a little bit about what it means. And we're, we're in particular, uh, I think that we're missing the heterogeneity of symptoms that are covered by this broad term anxiety in sort of popular culture and increasingly in, in medicine as well. And so we end up being really imprecise. And that's a problem because different kinds of anxiety often need different kinds of treatment, right? And also empathically, you know, if, if you have a, a colleague or a friend and you want to understand what they're going through, uh, understanding what kind of anxiety they have is going to be important. So I think if we just, let's just pause for a moment and say, what is going on right now in the world? I'm anxious. You're anxious. Everyone I talk to is anxious. Usually on the street or at work, the conversation kind of stops there because we all know what we mean. There's this cultural anxiety and we're attributing it to many different things, whether it be COVID or war, et cetera, et cetera. We don't usually get more specific than that unless you're in the psychiatrist's office. But when we talk about our anxiety, we can be talking about lots of different things. And, and here's where I actually think it's really helpful to go back to kind of like anatomy, biology, evolutionary biology stuff, okay? I'm loving this. I mean, this is what I like to talk about. Yeah, so, so remember, a really, really long time ago, the nervous system of mammals as they evolved, you know, you had this sympathetic system, which is the, the thing that ramps you up and gets ready to, to fight or to, or, or to run away. And then you had this parasympathetic system that calmed everything down, right? And these two existed in some kind of yin and yang that, that allowed species to survive and evolve, et cetera, et cetera. And at, and at some point then you get this, and we often, you're going to hear the word amygdala, that's a part of the brain that's mm -hmm. kind of Back. That was a really important part, we think, of fear-based responses in that reptilian brain. And we all still have amygdalas, and they're really important. And we'll talk about why in a second. Okay, so then eventually we get this frontal stuff in our head, right? And that's where you're getting away from the fight or flight response, and you've got a little more 
what what humans consider to be sort of thoughtfulness, empathy, um, the ability not to just react, but to really be mindful, actually. Mm. So that's sort of the part of the anatomy that, that we're working with here. In anxiety, the fight or flight response goes on overdrive, right? So instead of, it would be totally appropriate to get really upset if a tiger appeared next to your car. You'd want your sympathetic nervous system to really engage and you'd want your amygdala to, to fire off, okay? The problem is that we're now behaving as if there's a tiger in the room when there is no tiger in the room. Mm-hmm. So an email pops up, it's not a tiger, everything's going to be just fine, actually. Nothing is going to happen to you in, in that moment. And you have a, a, a response that's way over and above what one would expect. We've all been through this, right? Yeah. So we have these brains, and, and, and I call them our, our brilliantly stupid heads. Mm-hmm. It's that frontal stuff that has allowed us to sort of take over and, and, and evolve. And yet we have this critically important fight or flight response and anxiety response to keep us out of danger that can really intrude into other situations. Likewise, other situations can tap into that, let's call it a network, and create anxious responses that are devastating and totally inappropriate. And so our heads are both smart and stupid at the same time. You know, I just want to say, you're on my team here because I always say I know this is evolutionary and fight or flight, but and we need anxiety so we don't baseline die. It keeps us safe in some way. But can we evolve past thinking an email is a tiger? Like, can we just keep the anxiety we need? Uh, and can our brain evolve past that without us having to do all this work? That's my uh, dream. <laughs> I'll tell you that there are some people and, and one person who is at a, at a very interesting intersection in, the, in many spaces, a woman named Tara Brock, um, in some of her work, she, she will talk about a collective movement towards a different kind of consciousness. Okay, in some of her work, and and I, I think a lot of her work is is fantastic, and we'll, we'll refer to some of it because I think oh cool, it, I love her work too. Yeah, I I d- I wasn't aware she was saying that specifically, so that's really exciting. With different words, I yeah. think, but I I don't think she would disagree with that statement. Yeah. So so we have this thing that we call anxiety, and we all know that we need anxiety to stay alive. But we all agree that when an, an a, when an email is a tiger, something is wrong, right? And I know I'm going to get ten tiger emails today, and I have to learn how to choose my response to those emails rather than let that email trigger a network that automatically and reactively involves my amygdala and puts me into a, a, a state that I don't, not only do I not want to be in, but I'm probably not at my most productive, mindful self in that state. Okay. Now, that said, you and I also know that anxiety motivates us to get stuff done. You know, the work that you have done, you have done in part because you've channeled the energy of anxiety. Tell that to somebody who's having a panic attack, they'll hit you. Yep. But tell that to somebody who's contemplating the role of anxiety and how, in some ways, they can leverage it for good. It might be helpful. Be a little careful with that one with your friends, right? Because it can sound really unempathetic, too. Okay. So when we talk about anxiety, and I just started jotting down a list just for fun, what we're talking about is what some people have heard of, like, panic disorder. We're talking about all the phobias that people often know about. We're talking about social anxiety disorder. We're talking about performance anxiety. We're talking about generalized anxiety. We're talking about anxiety subtypes like obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, 
we're talking about so many different kinds of distress, all right? And I think that it's worth saying, um, you know, that many, many of of these disorders are undertreated. So like a third of patients, we think about 30% of people with social anxiety disorder. Um, what was so first of all, probably about half don't seek treatment. Mm-hmm. A third of those who do don't actually respond to the treatments that we have. Mm. That's going to be specific to the anxiety subtype. Social anxiety disorder is third for others. It's, it's different. Um, I think that it's also worth noting that certain kinds of anxiety, like performance anxiety. So, you know, for many, many years, I played the violin a lot and I was around a lot of performers. And, you know, you'd see people taking something backstage and, uh, and eventually you, you, <laughs> you'd find out it wasn't an illicit drug. It, it was just a beta blocker. Right. Yeah. Which is a really different kind of anxiety, right, than the anxiety that I think we're going to be talking about mostly today. Most people in, in this historical moment I'm finding in clinic are in incredibly ruminative anxieties where in isolation, their heads are going around and around and they're ruminating, ruminating, ruminating. What is rumination? I think of rumination is thinking that sounds like it's a really good idea because maybe you'll solve something, but actually it just becomes obsessional and you don't solve anything. You drive yourself crazy. Okay. Let's blow that up a little bit bigger. All right. Remember, and this is where our, this is, you know, again, our brilliantly stupid brains, the thoughts we have in our brains, they're not necessarily real. Um, it's, let's phrase this a different way. Yeah. True. Yes. But real. There's a, there's a scholar who uses that distinction. And I think that's, that's quite helpful. I'm forgetting who it is. Do you remember? I think the scholar is named Jen Kirkman. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) no, I don't, I don't, but I, 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 I don't know. I probably learned it from said person, but, but I think of it as like, no, my thoughts are real. They're really happening. I'm really worried about this, but they're just not true. Is that kind of what that means? What you're saying? So exactly. So these thoughts are happening. They're real in that way. Okay. So we're not discrediting that we have thoughts and feelings and emotions, but that doesn't mean that they're true. And this problem we have, I think, especially in Western societies, this idea that what we think in our head is actually a reflection of the real world Mm. is completely unfounded, right? We don't know that what we see is actually there. We don't know that empiricism is actually a valid way of working of working through the world. We use it because it works seems it seems to work well enough. Yeah. But suddenly this world all feels both true and real, and you really get yourself in trouble if you start ruminating up here because you start making stuff up. And you make a lot of stuff up and it happens. It's like every time you go in a ruminative circle, you pick up a little bit more of that not realness right? Or not trueness, whatever you want to call it. And pretty soon, I mean, think about this in some of the relationships that, that maybe you've been in. Mm-hmm. If there's been something ruminating around and you haven't actually spoken to the person, by the end of that several days of ruminating, you've constructed a whole new person, right? And so, you know, there's this exercise that some of our patients do, which is when they're feeling anxious, and you, I'm sure you've heard of this before with other folks, you, know, you write down what the fear is, you do the thing, and then you see if the fear came true. And after showing yourself that rarely does the fear actually materialize. Oh, right? you know, we haven't talked about that on this podcast. It's an exercise I did during my anxiety recovery, and I've forgotten about it. Yeah, a, a really straightforward example is, is the Tiger email example. So. Mm-hmm. 
you haven't even opened your email yet for the day. And you're having about to have a panic attack because you know there's going to be an email in there, at least one, that's going to set your week on fire, right? So you write down what you're feeling, you check your email. Turns out it's all spam. I mean, it won't, but it, your, your week hasn't blown up. Yeah. In an evidence-based way, we are relying on some empiricism here, right? Um, despite what I just said, uh, you, you kind of can show yourself that actually these fears are unfounded. So the reason that we, we want to remember that rumination is different than phobias, is different than panic disorder, is different than social anxiety, uh, is different than, you know, uh, some anxiety disorders are actually anxiety. Someone has anxiety that they will become anxious. Yeah. So in agoraphobia, people are anxious, but they will become embarrassed, ashamed, and, and anxious publicly. So anxiety about anxiety also snowballs as its own thing. So lots and lots and lots of diversity in the category of anxiety. That's what we mean by heterogeneity within sort of the, the, the category itself or, or the, the general term. What do we do about it? So we have this range of tools, and one of them that we're going to talk about today is, is ketamine. Mm. But I would be so misleading any listener or any friend or any family member, member anybody who's, who's suffering from any kind of anxiety, if I didn't mention that we have lost track over and over again about getting back to certain basics when it comes to just basic mental health wellness, right? So, so that means stuff like practicing mindfulness in some capacity, whether it's meditation or, or, or a different mindfulness modality. It means learning how to interrupt those reactive patterns in our thoughts that just go on autopilot, right? Mm -hmm. It means recognizing our rumination when it's happening and mindfully choosing whether we really want to go down that path or if it's just not going to be helpful. It means social connectedness, which is super important for anxiety. Yeah. As a side note, there's a distribution that's gender-specific in a certain kind of anxiety disorder in which, although the cultural stereotype is that women, the assumption is women suffer from it more than men, it's actually the exact opposite. But the very simple process of naming the thing that, yeah, of what's going on, so that's fear, that's anxiety, whatever word you have for it. That in and of itself creates distance between the I that's doing the naming. I mean, it's a semiotic, it's a linguistic thing, really, right? Yeah. I am a subject naming some other thing. And there's an implicit space there. That means I'm not identifying with the feeling. I'm not the same thing. Because I can step away and say, here, this observer person is pointing to that thing there that is separate, okay? And you're saying that in the case of anxiety, I don't know if this may be true in other mental health areas, that sort of um, mindful, you know, do this in, in mindful meditation, being able to be the observer, I am not my anxiety, that's a good thing you're saying. We want that space. Yeah. So although a lot of mindfulness is about interconnectivity, in this case, what we're talking about is not over-identifying or even identifying with the object that we're labeling, because it is not us. Your fear is not actually who you are. You're observing this thing called the fear that is transient. Okay, so there's a space there that is the starting point for a lot of that kind of meditation and mindfulness approaches. You know, it, creating that space is also a way of saying, okay, once again, remember what's happening in my stupid, brilliant head is not necessarily a reflection of what's happening in reality. And sometimes creating that linguistic space also creates a moment, a, a moment of repose where one can introduce that thought as well. 
but they're very simple, low-tech things. And what would be a tragedy is if people ignore the basic stuff and just go to give me something in my arm via IV. (laughs) It's much less likely to work, but it also misses our fundamental duty to do no harm and to do things safely and to use the least interventional approach or or the approach that is least likely to cause the most damage Mm -hmm. um, and still achieve a good effect. So we don't want to forget about all this stuff that people have known in some cases for over a thousand years. It's just we keep forgetting. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. What I find so interesting about, I think, where you're going with, you know, going into things such as ketamine is it feels spiritual and ethereal, but like it's really real in terms of how well it dovetails with medical. Like, no, we really have to train our brains to see it as separate. And weirdly, that's what people who don't even have anxiety are doing in their, you know, mindfulness meditation. But anyway, my 
my big babble here is that it's so great to hear you say that because it it makes anxiety I feel like less threatening. I feel like when we keep ramping things up, now there's ketamine for anxiety. It's like, oh, wow. Does that mean that like the things aren't working or, you know, I know that there will be some people that that need it. Maybe it helps them get there quicker to, you know, like for me, it took 20 years of doing all this stuff where honestly I had a lot of hard times and it probably interrupted a lot of my life. Perhaps if I'd been able to use a drug that helped me understand what I was doing, I, I assume that's what it does and we'll get to it. But I think it's so great that you said all that because, you know, a lot of people can't get ketamine treatment, the the cost, the availability. It's like, I don't want people to think there's this amazing miracle thing coming that's so big, but you can't have it. So ah, you're fucked. You know, it's like, um, but also to say how profound, you know, these little things are that we sweep under the rug every time. Yeah. Mindfulness. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But it's like, no, no, this is the answer. You just don't want to believe it because it's hard. It takes practice. Yeah. Jen, that's so dead on. I can't tell you the number of times, and this is especially true for some reason with pediatric populations, um, and that's a whole other question of ketamine and pediatrics, but you know, very often parents, when they hear about the various options, the idea of going through years of therapy versus getting a drug I mean, it's a no-brainer to them. And they really grasp at that, we call them magic bullets in medicine, right? There's actually a book called No Magic No Magic Bullet. Mm. It talks about this fallacy that's so seductive in medicine that we'll find the drug that just fixes the thing and then move on. And we know that in most illness states, especially in psychiatry, that's just not how it works in most, okay? Yeah. And, really hard sometimes to get parents to sort of shift out of that model because they so desperately don't want to hear that potentially years of therapy and a lot of effort are going to be needed. Now, Jen, I'm really, and, and you, you, you nailed it exactly. There are certain cases in which you can do all this stuff and you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing it as best you can, but it's still not, the anxiety still not breaking, right? I often tell patients that the purpose when we use our evolving neurotherapeutics like ketamine, sometimes the purpose is not to make them better with the drug. It's to make them well enough so they can more fully engage much simpler things and get much more reward from them, right? Because sometimes the ketamine is not going to fix it, but it gives you 30% more to invest into some of the other stuff we're talking about, then suddenly everything comes together really nicely, right? So tell me, what is ketamine? I mean, what is it? Where where does it live in the drug world? I mean, I knew a lot. I knew uh, casually of people that have used it for depression, and and I knew the word, and then I was started to research it, and I was like, oh, it's it's more of like in the LSD family, or no? Am I wrong? Like, what is it? I have no clue, honestly. So I think the first thing to say is that some people include ketamine in the so-called, quote, psychedelic family. Some do not. That's a whole uh, that, that's an hour in and of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the term psychedelic is pretty problematic because like anxiety, it covers so much different stuff and it's, it's pretty imprecise. So um, I, I would think about ketamine as we call it an NMDA receptor antagonist. Okay. 
that's what we refer to it as. Now, what does that really mean? And is there a way that we can make that more more um, understandable from, from a mechanistic perspective? There is. But I think first we got to start with its history. So ketamine was actually FDA approved first as a general anesthetic decades ago. It is, as of WHO's last look or last publication, I, I believe, probably the most commonly used general anesthetic in the world. But um, the, the bigger point being that, you know, ketamine's been around, it was synthesized by a chemist, you know, decades ago, it was FDA approved as a, as a general anesthetic. It was, it was actually discovered in the 60s and, and approved by the FDA in 1970. So it's been around for a really long time. It's a really dirty drug. By dirty, dirty doesn't mean bad. It means it hits a lot of different receptors. Mm. That includes opiate receptors, right, which is a concern because we also know ketamine is a substance of abuse. There are epidemics of addiction, and, or, or I should say there are epidemics of use disorders of ketamine, especially in parts of Asia right now. And there continue to be pockets of it culturally in the U.S. Um, in, can I ask a question? When people are abusing it, are they... Is it in pill form? Are they shooting it? Are they snorting? Like, can, how how do they get the substance? Is it liquid? Is it just about any anything? anything? Okay. Often it's taken by mouth on the street, but I have heard of of people doing other things with it as well. And you know, it, it's a it's a highly controlled substance by the government. It, it's it's illegal to sell it or, or to give out unless you have you know to uh, unless it's being prescribed. So. It's a drug that has been around for a long time and that we understand, but that we really have to have a lot of respect for because although it has been around a long time, there's still a lot of things we don't understand about it, especially in these new indications, A. And B, it does hit a lot of different receptors. And that makes coming up with a mechanism for how it works a little bit tricky. In the history of ketamine's evolution, remember, you know, it, it kind of so it was discovered as a general anesthetic, or created and then approved as a general anesthetic, Veterinary medicine ended up picking it up eventually, and it's also fairly easy to administer. So it doesn't do what certain general other general anesthetics do. For example, it doesn't depress respiratory rate. Mm. I mean, this is actually quite sad. During the Vietnam War, there is some good history that uh, you know, basically, you know, teenagers were given ketamine to give to each other in the battlefield because it was a way to alleviate pain or give some anesthesia without potentially putting someone into respiratory failure. Yeah. So there's a dark side to to the the use of ketamine and in conflict zones too, and, and dark side or light side depending on, on on one's perspective. So it continues to kind of stick around, continues to be used in ORs, and then in the 2000s, people start doing studies and noticing that it's having effects on what traditionally has been in the realm of psychiatry. All right, and and so what they're noticing first is that people who are really quite depressed suddenly after getting ketamine, like their depression kind of seems to be gone. And there's a lot of what's turned into folklore about exactly, you know, what happened and when. Um, but at the end of the day, we ended up accumulating more and more data that showed especially, and most of the early stuff was especially for depression, that ketamine appeared to engage a novel mechanism, meaning a mechanism that had not really been used by previous medications to treat depression. I started our clinic when I felt the evidence base had reached a point where it was actually unethical not to offer this, even though the FDA has not approved regular ketamine and never will because it was approved for something else that's off patent. Mm. And then S-ketamine came along, which is FDA approved. We can talk about the differences between the two. So you asked, like, you know, 
what is this stuff? What does it do? It, it comes down, we think, okay? We think it comes down to something called synaptogenesis. Oh, cool. If you think about the brain, and, and let's go back to like our, our the, the biological description that we gave before, we've got sort of this front part of our head, and there's a lot of pretty sophisticated stuff up there. And then you've got an amygdala in the back that's very reptilian, but super important for that fear response. During... And you have this thing called a prefrontal cortex. So when our really sophisticated prefrontal cortex, it's actually called the, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, when that's really active, it puts the brakes on the connectivity between the, that reptilian fear-based amygdala mm-hmm. and the frontal lobe, which is where a lot of our higher order thinking goes. Okay, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to reduce the anxious inputs coming from the amygdala. By comparison, if you really ramp up that dorsal anterior cingulate cortex in the frontal lobe, you can actually end up increasing communication between the amygdala and the frontal lobe. And, and we're thinking of these more now as networks rather than circuits, which is why this language is a little bit inadequate. Mm. But that's sort of some of the basic biology of it in terms of anatomic structure. What we think ketamine is doing is by inducing a surge in a neurotransmitter called glutamate, okay? By inducing a, a, a glutamate surge, we think it's allowing neurons to create the possibility for new connections with other neurons. Uh-huh. Hence the term synaptogenesis, meaning the genesis, the creation of more synapses. And the hypothesis, roughly speaking, is that if you're able to do that in the right networks, and those networks are reinforced, there's a phrase, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, you That is adorable. <laughs> and I should say I did not make that up. I have no idea who did. <laughs> but, you know, I think what we're seeing, what we think is happening with ketamine is basically the, the final common denominator probably being synaptogenesis. And that is relevant to so many things, including depression and anxiety. Now, I have a really dumb question. When you're creating, when ketamine is creating these new neurons that fire together and wire together, just this is like baseline caveman dumb. Is it always good? Do you know what I mean? There's never a chance of them creating (laughs) bad neural pathways. I know it's not neural pathways, but is it, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. How do we know? Like, they're not going to create more neurotic things, right? So that is a wonderful and complex question. The, the bottom line is, I don't know for sure. What I can tell you is that empirically, it seems, and this is where, by the way, when we describe mechanisms as doctors and scientists, we're making a lot of stuff up based on a lot of assumptions, mm-hmm. right? I, which is not to say that people aren't doing their best. We're doing our very best. But these are our guesses based on, you know, empirical observations and mechanisms. Okay. So with regard to your question, you know, the evidence suggests that when you give a depressed person or possibly an anxious, depressed person ketamine and you see a response, well, that would suggest that you're not reinforcing those depressed networks. Got it. So, you know, by uh, like trial and error, I mean, not that you're looking to prove my dumb question, but you, you can just see it. But, however, 
I want to be careful not to say that bad things can't happen because I can tell you that in the ketamine abuse literature, a lot of bad things happen to the brain, right? Um, a lot of bad things and to other parts of the body as well. And we don't have super longitudinal data on ketamine and its uses in psychiatry either, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why it's important that people not just go running to their nearest ketamine clinic when they get anxious and that they go through a really careful, thought-out, formal process, um, it, it, one, there, in other words, a reason not to just jump from, I've never been on a medication, I've now been diagnosed with anxiety, I'm going to ketamine, is because there are a lot of unknowns and uncertainties about these medicines that it's going to be a long time before we know the answers to. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency, where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I have a question. So when I was in my early 20s, I had depression and, and uh, anxiety, blah, blah. And so 
I went to a, a talk therapist and she said, you, you probably need medication. You should go to a psychiatrist. You probably have a chemical imbalance. And I've talked about this on other episodes, but you know, it's mid nineties. I don't really know anyone else on medication. Someone says chemical imbalance. I think, well, I made the appointment with a psychiatrist. They're going to shave my head, put on some receptors. They're going to find this chemical imbalance. I'm going to get blood drawn. And this guy just looks at me, says, yeah, Prozac, you have a chemical imbalance. Bye. And I'm like, how the hell do you know? And so I feel like with ketamine, um, if I come in and I'm like, look, I've been on every antidepressant. It's not getting better. Let's try this. Is there a test? Um, unlike these other things people give, like, do you actually see my chemical imbalance? So the short answer in the clinical setting right now is no. The longer answer, and we're actually in the, talking about this right now, we're looking for biomarkers that may tell us if someone is likely to be a responder versus not a responder. Lots and lots and lots of biomarkers. This is a huge issue right now in drug development in general, right? As, as a new class of medicines, a new pipeline comes forward, of which some of us consider ketamine and esketamine to be you know, among the first um, in this pipeline. So no, we don't have a test. And in clinical practice, You'll almost you'll never go into a doctor's office and have them show you, you know, um, a picture of all your neurotransmitters and 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 where the chemical imbalances. Our language is really messy around this in psychiatry. I, I get the chemical imbalance metaphor, but it's probably way more complicated than that. I mean, imbalance is so vague, right? And there's a reason. And there's so many chemicals. It's like, are we talking serotonin? Are we talking dopamine? You know. Yeah, yeah. So I think chemical imbalance is a very poor, is a, it was our best attempt, and, and but a very poor substitute for a much more precise um, description. The problem is that defining that what's actually happening with a lot of precision, um, that there isn't a five-minute elevator p pitch for that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so we resort to these kinds of metaphors. So I have a question. Like, if I'm on a plane, and I've got my little clonopin prescription dissolvable half milligram for when I'm having like an absolute panic attack on a plane and all my stuff isn't working that I do and I just need to be comfortable. I pop it. It stops the panic and I can get on with my whatever I'm doing. But it doesn't uh, prevent future panic attacks. Obviously, it's as needed. So it seems right. like ketamine is a whole different thing where you're going to get a treatment. And can you explain what, it what the treatment feels like? Um, and then can you explain like how it might prevent later? Or I'm assuming it does do preventative or can, right? Yeah. So now maybe is a good time for us to, for me to tell you a little bit about why you're hearing mostly about ketamine with depression. And it almost sometimes feels like then there's a footnote about the anxieties yeah. with ketamine. And then we can talk about the experience and what it's in, and, and, you know, sort of step-by-step step what it feels like. So most of the studies on ketamine have been done with depression. Um, what I have found in, in our service is that almost everyone that I see doesn't just have depression. Depression and anxiety, to me, are two sides of the same coin, okay? So, I mean, occasionally you'll see somebody who will absolutely deny one or the other, and I'm like, remarkable. I never see this. Now, that's partly because of, you know, we're, we're a psychiatric center of referral, so we get, tend to get pretty tough cases. But a lot of people are struggling with, you know, both anxiety and depression. Now, it is true that most of the research on ketamine uh, falls into the depression category at this point. However, 
there are a number of studies that have looked up specifically at anxiety. So, for example, one study on anxiety and ketamine that had 11 depressed subjects, so this was anxiety and depression, showed that their anxiety rating decreased by, and most of the subjects decreased by about half, which is, you know, not bad. Yeah. Carlos Zerati uh, showed, showed some interesting uh, potential for ketamine uh, for anxiety in a 2006 paper. For OCD, there's been some good work done by a number of different people for social anxiety disorder. There's a really interesting study that showed that about six out of 18 subjects with social anxiety disorder res- responded. Um, interesting, and this is where the footnote comes up, you know, Having six out of 18 subjects, these are small studies, six out of 18 subjects respond, you know, that's not terrible. It's not as good as we'd like, but it's not terrible. But when they did a different score, when they did what's called a visual analog scale, that's where you point to the faces, like happy, sad, anxious, and say which one you are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, zero out of 17 patients really showed any difference before and after treatment on that measurement. So on the validated scientific instrument, Anxiety seemed to get better for a significant number of, of patients, but on the visual analog scale, which I just think is so, you know, it's just sort of so intuitive. I have an intuitive trust of it to some extent. Nobody really changed. There's a great paper by a really close friend of mine. Uh, I was in her wedding, um, so I'm biased. But she shows that anxious depression mm. may actually respond better than depression itself. To ketamine treatments. Yes. Oh, wow. Cool. It's a really cool paper. Um, have we seen that play out? I'm not sure yet, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's a really reassuring thing to be able to, to share with folks because, again, um, very often, the more you peel and, and investigate a person's anxiety, very often you find depression somewhere in there, too. But the, the fundamental idea is that even if we don't see, and this is true of so many psych medications, if, if we had visuals here, I could show you some graphs uh, with depression scores that are just stunning. They, you know, the patient's depression seems to just almost disappear after a treatment or two, right? And it's a real risk right now in, in, in social media and in, in messaging because a lot of people come into consults thinking that's what's going to happen and it doesn't. Okay? But it has been shown to happen. Um, even if we can't quite get that same thing with just pure anxiety. Again, if you can take some of the edge and the intractability of it to open up space and bandwidth for this other stuff, then you've done a good thing. And and I also want to mention that, you know, you mentioned drugs and drugs and drugs and trials of drugs. Um, what many places will do is use a definition of treatment refractory illness before they recommend a ketamine, or there are some places that are more aggressive and will simply look for, you know, a, a, an attempt or two with a medication that clearly failed. There's a lot of debate right now about when ketamine should be used and when it should not. Generally, academic centers are going to be more conservative, and private centers just philosophically are going to be a little bit more liberal or aggressive. Okay, but just so you know, in most academic centers, teams are going to want to see that first-line stuff didn't work first. I do think we make a mistake if, for a person who is otherwise an ideal candidate, we wait for 20 medicines because you've lost how many years? 
of trying medicines, doing intense therapy, and not living your life. And now so, your job is even harder, like the, in, in terms of the ketamine's going to do even more than it was going to do three years ago when they walked in, right? Exactly. So there's some balance here that we're all still trying to figure out. A lot of it is safety driven and, and uncertain. And you know, a lot of what we talk about in, in other lectures is how do you navigate uncertainty in a therapeutic pipeline when the statistics on depression, anxiety, and suicide should be headline news every day? right? So it's a real problem. And yet we have a lot of uncertainty about what's in the pipeline. We're really excited about it, but we also don't know a ton about it yet. And figuring out ethically what you can offer when is really tricky. And it is a whole session in and of itself. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. 
Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. So take me through like, so now I'm a candidate for ketamine. So here I come. I'm going to my first appointment. Like what actually happens? How many appointments? What does it feel like? Because I'll tell you this, I've never, and I know it's not, I'm just casually throwing out the word LSD and psychedelics, which I know it's not, but it, as you said, it's a dirty drug, touches a lot of receptors, but I'm a, um, I've never tripped. I've never done any drug like that as an anxious person. I don't want to leave my reality. Right. Um, I don't even like pot, just like, no, no, no. Glass of wine is fine with me because I know exactly what's going to happen. But so, but at the same time, I'm very attracted to this. Like I have this fantasy that when I'm, you know, 80 years old, 90 and in hospice that I want to do psychedelic therapy for death anxiety. Um, and I'm hoping I, but at the same time, the, the anxiety of death I have to me, like is the same anxiety of psychedelics that I have. Like, I don't want to go to a weird place. So, uh, would I be a bad candidate for ketamine or what happens during, (laughs) during the session? Well, let me tell you what happens and then you can tell me. Okay. Um, Yeah. That's a good point. Together. Okay. Um, so, and I'll get real, I'll be real practical. So let's skip over the medical clearance stuff and the, the logistical stuff. So, so you come into the room, um, a blood pressure cuff and a pulse oximeter. So that measures heart rate and your oxygen saturation is put on the finger. This is really simple stuff. It just takes a second. Yeah. Um, and you're in a chair or a stretcher and there's a nurse with you and a small like pediatric IV is placed in. By the way, I'm talking about ketamine. Okay. I'm not talking about S-ketamine because S-ketamine's FDA approval it, it has two approvals. The one that has it has been used the most for thus far is treatment refractory major depressive disorder. Okay. It's approved for TRMDD. It is also helpful to some extent, in my experience, in anxiety, but the FDA label and the approval is for TRMDD. And then there's also a suicide, uh, suicidal indication as well. I'm going to talk more about IV ketamine because it, it doesn't have an FDA approval in psychiatry. And um, we do, sometimes I will use IV ketamine because I have a little bit more flexibility in dosing with patients who are concurrently anxious and depressed. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll still use S-ketamine. So the IV goes in and, um, you know, vitals are checked. People often are anxious before their first infusion, especially, right? Um, most people we get are like you because actually a history of substance abuse is, is potentially a reason why you would not want to recommend ketamine to someone. You don't want to. Okay. There's a lot of debate about this in the field too, right? So again, this technically is an opiate and we're in an opiate epidemic. Yeah. So you have to be careful about making sure that you're treating the right patients. You don't want to create a problem. And there's some, there, there's some real debate in the field about, about how to think about that. Again, academic centers are going to be on the more conservative side, usually, uh, generally speaking, a little bit different in private sectors. So um, the infusion starts, the ketamine goes in, and here is where what most people experience is a combination of one of the following. Some perceptual changes, so colors may seem really vivid, noises may seem louder or softer. Altered sense of time, the 40-minute infusion may seem really, really long or really, really short. Mm. 
Some people get a little disinhibited and goofy, although I wouldn't say that's the majority. Um, some people get kind of, kind of depend, and I think this may have something to do with what they're bringing into the room at the time. Mm. Some get pretty tearful, and it's a kind of cathartic experience. Some patients experience dissociation. So this is a dissociative anesthetic, meaning that classic dissociation, the example is if you've ever been, and, and unfortunately patients with PTSD often experience this, it's, it's a kind of defense mechanism. When something's bad happening to you, the mind will arrange itself. So essentially you are watching yourself as if from, if there's a camera up there, you're up there watching it happen to you, right? right? So that can happen during ketamine where people feel dissociated or, or from their body. A, another similar thing is something called derealization. Oh, yeah. That's, I don't, mm -mm. I right. can get that just walking around. Not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, and we call this psychotomimesis because some of this stuff is a little psychotic-like, right? And in fact, when people study psychosis, one way they try to create a state physiologically that in some ways approximates psychosis in, in mice or rats is by giving them ketamine. And I can, I can see your anxiety going up right That's now. That's right. <laughs> the reason I'm not falling off my chair every time I talk about this is because that stops when the infusion ends, usually within a couple minutes. Okay. Some people don't experience dissociation or psychomimesis at all. So the range of what people experience is extremely broad. It's pretty rare that I have somebody come in and be like, Dr. Meisner, that was awesome. Can I come tomorrow too? Yeah. That does not happen. It sounds like a lot of work that you're going through when you're sitting there. You're not getting a, uh, you're not getting high for an hour. It, it, it is not for most people a high experience. For most people, they're also not saying, I am never coming back. That, that has been said. Mm -hmm. Few people say, I'm never, ever doing that again. Some people say, you know, that was really uncomfortable. Can we take this one step at a time? And, and I don't have to like sign up for everything all at once, right? Of course, the answer is no. Mm. Of course, it's one step at a time. And I have had patients who are like, you know, we've done, ketamine is, is, is wonderful in that typically the response is quite fast. If you don't get a, a fast response, the probability of a meaningful response goes down dramatically. Wow. So you kind of know right away in a way. Which is one of the reasons why we like it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, how many how many two to three month trials on an SSRI do you need more before you go crazy? And it's sometimes you're like, I don't know, am I better? Or am I not? Because, you know, you're dealing with like life too, right? So you might be on a drug trial. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, oh, then a pandemic happens. And you're like, well, wait, am I depressed because I'm depressed or I'm in, lo in lockdown? Like, I don't know. But so then, all right, so I do my one ketamine. I go home. Now, what am I going to feel differently? Like, let's say I have panic attacks uh, driving. Would I maybe potentially not have one that night in a situation where I normally would? Yeah, it's possible. We typically use three to four infusions as our, our what we call the challenge, or the, it's like the litmus test to see if there's response. We have seen, and in the literature, there are there are good examples of people whose depression and anxiety improves pretty significantly after just the first infusion or two. Okay, now if you stop there, it will get bad again. Yeah. So. What you need to do at the very least is a series to prolong the effect and then either be in a maintenance protocol where you come back every so often or in our service, since we have esketamine with an FDA approval, which has its own maintenance protocol, 
In our service, we use IV ketamine. We use a booster model where we try to keep people out of the clinic for as long a time as possible and only bring them back when symptoms return. Okay. So what does that look like scheduling wise? Yeah. Racemic ketamine. This is the non FDA approved one. Our interpretation of the literature at this point, and keep in mind, this is a moving target. So the protocol could change two weeks from now. It's two infusions a week, usually for about three weeks, and then two to three treatments after that between about you know one and two weeks apart. We consider that to be the induction or the acute phase. And if there's been substantive response and relief, we then stop and ask the patient to let us know if symptoms start creeping back and they feel like a booster series, which is usually between one and three treatments, is needed. Now, what we can't predict is how long that so-called wellness interval is going to be, right? So I have some patients for whom, you know, if it's just four weeks, I'm a little uncomfortable continuing with IV ketamine when it's not FDA approved. And when you have a maintenance drug in S ketamine, which is meant to be done in the maintenance phase every week or two, if you get three, four months of relief and then need three booster infusions, I'm more comfortable with that just from an exposure perspective. Could some people get like years of relief? Some, yes, yeah. but that is not, that should never be the expectation. Okay. Um, it would be, and it is in the, the cases I can think of where it appears that that has happened, I consider it to be an extraordinary event and very, very good luck. And I think it has something to do with the subtype of depression and or anxiety that was happening. Um, it is much more typical that some kind of, call it a booster or call it maintenance treatment will be needed. You know, so just to tell you what's going on on the streets here, non-doctors talking. What I've heard just casually from people talking about it is, oh yeah, yeah, you do this and it cures you for life. And that's like what the lay people around are saying. Yeah. And I think that this has been so eye-opening for me because it's like, this isn't that. This is like what you said, this is to take really a acute case of anxiety and like, let's just get you to somewhere where you can start doing the things we're all supposed to do for anxiety. Like, I, this is amazing. I literally, when I first started talking to you, I was like, oh, it's a thing you do three times and you never have it again. My field is to blame. I mean, we did a lousy job at the very beginning, emphasizing that those papers that were published where just a few were given and there was a huge response, those were not longitudinal papers. Mm. There's a real problem in science reporting, and, and the problem is with doctors, not the reporters. We need to communicate to science reporters that in certain studies that we're looking at, um, the duration may be very, very low, and the outcome, you know, that the score may be very low in a good way, but it's only been a week, right? When it gets translated into a, a, a tiny blurb in a newspaper, you miss that extremely important point, right? And so, yeah, a lot of people are out there requesting consults because they think it's the magic bullet. And there is no magic bullet. Do you think that like, so I'm there, I'm getting my ketamine treatment at work. So I'm one of these people it does well with is one of the things that's happening is that like almost the way people do talk about a psychedelic experience where they're like, oh my God, I took this drug and I realized we're all one, you know, all this stuff where you're like, well, I knew that anyway. Like, do I, do I come home and then start to have an easier time being the observer? So I'm really glad you asked. One of the differences I think um, 
that exists, and I think this is going to get better defined as, as the next couple of years evolve. One of the differences between ketamine and, say, some of the psilocybins of the world, some of the other pipeline stuff that, that are also being worked on, is when you read descriptions of how something like a psilocybin or um, some of those similar compounds, when you read about how people seem to feel better after, there is a kind of insight-oriented shift Mm -hmm. that seems to be a significant part of many people's experience who have a good one, okay? Um, In ketamine, it is very rare, in my mind it has only happened once, that someone came out of an infusion and said, I understand things in a different way now. I know what I need to do. I'm going to go do it. And that's it. Now, in this particular case, the patient made a decision, a major life decision, that we actually would not have advised making during an infusion. Um, I don't know that it was the right decision or not, but they chose to move forward with that decision. That's not typically the way things go at this dosing of ketamine. That idea does seem to tap into what may be happening with some of the pipeline developments in the psilocybins and and other similar compounds of the world. But we don't see that so much with this kind of modeling in ketamine. Okay, got it. But it is something where, as I'm getting better because of the treatments, it's doing something to my brain that maybe is not so like flashbulb obvious, but it's it's helping me... uh, maybe not ruminate as much or think, you know, there's nothing that can be done for me? Yeah. So we think that through that thing called synaptogenesis, where you can, you know, create the possibility for new communication between neurons. Um, we think that for, for some reason that through that process, we know that symptoms in Patients who are what we call responders, you know, their suicidality often improves dramatically. Uh, their mood may improve significantly. Um, sleep's a little bit trickier. Um, sleep is, in my experience, been something that's been a little bit harder when it's a function of depression to adjust. Energy, you know, will often go up. Um, anhedonia, the inability to enjoy things that will go down, and it's a good thing, right? So, so you're seeing, and anxiety often decreases. So you're seeing sort of this, we know this synaptogenesis thing is happening. We know this is modulated by this neurotransmitter glutamate and this surge that happens in the synapse. And then we see these results coming in. And, and I should say, we say that it's about a 50% response rate. And that's a little hand wavy because to really define exactly what we mean by response, all comers, you're going to see numbers all over the board. And a lot of it has to do with how sick people are coming in. Got it percent improvement always in part depends on how bad or good you started out at, right? So the devil's in the details in that stuff. 50% is a generic is a generic percent, and it's not perfect, but it's a reasonable way, I think, to communicate uh, the response rate and then to go into details a little bit more into consult based on a person-specific sort of gestalt presentation. So, so back to your point, yeah, it's less of an insight-oriented, oh my gosh, I just realized my mom really did love me, <laughs> right? I, and I'm, 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 per- I'm purposely being a little sarcastic here. It's it, the, the treatments that do that, of course, are much more sophisticated. 
Um, and it's a little bit more about something happening, we think, neurobiologically, that then allows these symptoms of depression and anxiety to subside. And it, it does, again, seem, with the caveat that most of the work, that more work has been done in depression than anxiety, that while anxious depression may be especially ripe for this kind of treatment. Um, most of the remarkable work that we've seen has been more in depression than anxiety, although we've seen anxiety improve as well. I do want to say one thing, though, mm -hmm. about breakthrough anxiety, okay? And this, and, and this is going to make everybody's anxiety go up for a second, but that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> We're going to invite our anxiety to be with us for a moment and just hang out and we can be separate things and just be present with each other. So sometimes what happens when someone has anxiety and depression and gets not just ketamine, but you know, I've seen this happen in electroconvulsive therapy, other treatments as well, is the depression starts to get better and the anxiety suddenly skyrockets. Mm. And so what, what is up with that? So if you think about this, and I think it's helpful as a, as a kind of sort of logical approach to make sense of the world, if you think about this evolutionarily speaking, why is it that this stuff exists? Well, there's lots of different reasons that people have hypothesized, but one of them is that one role that depression plays is to push anxiety down. So if depression is a site of hypoarousal and anxiety is hyperarousal, depression is a really bad way of reducing the hyperarousal of anxiety and pushing it down. It thus follows that if you take away that break or that pusher, the anxiety is going to skyrocket. That okay. literally happened to me. Yeah. Once once I got, um, you know, I had a kind of both things. And once I got my anxiety, I mean, once I got my depression wrangled, which was the first thing, here comes anxiety. I didn't have my little... Uh, yeah you know, yeah. cushion to go back to. And I, I used to love as an anxious person who more has it, had more anxiety than depression. I loved when I would get depressed because in a weird way, I would feel relaxed, fearless in a way like, Oh, who gives a shit? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I see it in, in, you know, the clinical setting pretty frequently actually. And what I also see though, is that over time, there's a kind of a, you know, the body does so many things, especially the brain behind the scenes that we don't understand or might, may not even be able to see at this point. And it does seem to come to a kind of equilibrium where it then adjusts and the anxiety tends to come down. Yeah. And I think that the literature is going to, I should be a bit careful because this is also an area of review and, and research and we don't know what it's going to say for sure. But clinically speaking, I do see that quite a bit. So although there's that kind of scary point of breakthrough anxiety, there's often that also quite reassuring point where it then sort of comes back down into a, a much more comfortable equilibrium. To anyone out there who may want to investigate this, where should they I don't mean like physically, where should they go? Or maybe I do. Where should they begin? Do you recommend they go to a, a more, like you said, um, oh God, what was the word you said that's more conservative? Oh, so an academic practice. So yeah, so I have, I think I have just two, two thoughts. One is the place to start is always with your primary prescribing psychiatrist or psychotherapist to talk about, you know, why you're thinking about it. And um and get their sense because you want that alliance with your primary treatment provider to be really strong and you want to make the decision together. Okay. And they may have, they may know nothing about it, in which case you'll learn together or they may know a ton about it. Okay. The second thing, actually, I'm going to give you three if that's okay. Yeah. 
you want to be really careful when you're picking the program where you're receiving care. I am very worried about inappropriate uses of ketamine, that is the FDA-approved anesthetic ketamine, not S-ketamine, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of TRMDD and has a suicidal indication as well. There is not, I don't believe, enough oversight in terms of protocols and safety and prescription and use and dis- dispensation of ketamine and IV ketamine, NPO ketamine, et cetera. So you want a center that it has good oversight, that is that feels safe, that practices you know, evidence-based medicine, that isn't adding on lots of non-evidence-based extras from a menu. Like, you know, you can go and do an infusion center and, you know, click what vitamin you want. Throw I was it just going to say, I'm hearing a lot of vitamins mixed in and it's always, that always gives me the icks. That always feels a little. Yeah. Basically you want to look for an evidence-based place. And, and if you're like, what's the evidence base for X? And they're like, we're not sure, but we think it's really cool. Don't you? Yeah. Don't go there. Okay. Um, I think that the other thing is, you know, increasingly insurance is covering some of these treatments at some places, but not at others. So you want to work all that out so you don't end up getting too excited and then end up three months down the road, everything's set up, and then you realize, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't, insurance isn't covering and I can't pay for it. That's been a major letdown and it's a tricky field to navigate. Yeah. I think that. The data-driven, evidence-based approach to all of this treatment in a safe environment is what's most important. Collaboration with your primary psychiatrist or therapist is an important part, too, so you want a team that's going to be able to do that if necessary. The, the final thing that I'll just say for, for everybody and for all of us during this really weird, weird time, um, and I mean this in a spirit of genuine optimism. I don't think there has ever been a time in modern history when it could have been better to be depressed or anxious Mm -hmm. because there's new stuff now here currently and in the pipeline that's moving quickly that appears to bring novel mechanisms and new agents to a field that's really been quite stagnant for a very long time. And in that regard, we are very lucky and our patients are very lucky um, because there is new stuff coming and new stuff here. And I do believe it's going to change the face of these illnesses. There's not going to be a magic bullet. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in magic bullets in general, but it is a better time than it was certainly 30 years ago to be anxious and depressed. I hope you learned a lot from my conversation with Dr. Robert Meisner. Let's go over the takeaways. And there are, oh, there are takeaways in this one. I learned so much. All right, here we go. Our stupidly, no, sorry. I Can I even do this right? I mean, I'm leaving it in. I'm not editing it up. <laughs> here are the takeaways. Our brilliantly stupid brains can like the idea of ruminating because it feels like you could solve something, but actually you're just causing yourself anxiety and driving yourself crazy. The thoughts we have in our brains are real, but not necessarily true. People with anxiety in Western societies mistakenly think that the thoughts in their head actually are a reflection of the real world. An exercise for coping with anxiety and fear. Write down the fear. 
do the thing that you're afraid of, see if that fear comes true, and then write the results. This is to show yourself that rarely does an anxious fear actually materialize. Dr. Meisner believes that we've lost track over and over again about getting back to certain basics when dealing with anxiety, like practicing mindfulness in any modality, which is basically learning to interrupt the reactive patterns in our thoughts that go on autopilot, recognizing our rumination when it's happening and mindfully choosing not to go down that path, keeping social connections, and the simple process of naming the thing that's going on, the fear, the anxiety. That creates a distance between the I that's doing the naming and the thing. Mindfulness is just about interconnectivity, not over-identifying or even identifying with the object that we're labeling as fear or anxiety because it is not us. Your fear is not actually who you are, and you're observing this thing called a fear, and that is transient. Sometimes creating a linguistic space of what's happening in my stupid, brilliant head is not necessarily a reflection of what's happening in reality can create a moment of repose. There is no magic bullet in medicine or in curing anxiety. The purpose when using evolving neurotherapeutics like ketamine is not so much to make a patient better with the drug, it's to make them well enough so that they can fully engage much simpler things and get more reward from them. Ketamine is not a psychedelic, but it is an NMDA receptor antagonist. Ketamine was FDA approved as a general anesthetic decades ago. It's been around for decades. Ketamine is a dirty drug, which doesn't mean that it's bad, but it means that it hits a lot of different receptors, and that includes opiate receptors. Ketamine is most known for treating depression, but most people with depression do also have anxiety. What ketamine is thought to be doing is inducing a surge in a neurotransmitter called glutamate which allows neurons to create the possibility for new connections with other neurons, which is the term synaptogenesis, which is relevant to depression and anxiety. Synaptogenesis simply means the genesis or the creation of more synapses. There is a phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. Dr. Meisner cautions, don't go running to the nearest ketamine clinic. Don't jump from, I've never been on medication, but I've just been diagnosed with anxiety. I'm going to ketamine. There are a lot of unknowns and uncertainties about these medicines that will take time for all of the answers to be understood. Generally, academic centers are going to be more conservative with administering ketamine, and private centers philosophically are going to be a little bit more liberal with administering. During a ketamine IV infusion treatment, people can experience perceptual changes. Colors may seem vivid, noises may seem louder or softer. There can be an altered sense of time. Some people may get disinhibited. Some people can get tearful, and some people can experience dissociation or derealization. A ketamine infusion is not an experience where people get high and want to come back for more. Typically, Ketamine patients are given three or four infusions as a litmus test to see if there is any response. Some people improve after just the first infusion or two. 
It's two infusions a week for about three weeks and then two to three treatments after that between one and two weeks apart. That's the induction or the acute phase. If there is a substantive response and relief, the process is stopped and patients are asked to monitor if any symptoms come back for a possible booster series, which is usually between one and three treatments. There isn't a way to predict how the so-called wellness interval is going to be in patients receiving ketamine treatments. Some people do get years of relief with ketamine treatments, but that should never be the expectation. It would be considered an extraordinary event and very good luck for that to happen. Anxious depression may be especially right for ketamine treatment. Most of the remarkable work that Dr. Meisner has seen has been more in depression and anxiety, although he's seen anxiety improve as well. That's it for this week's episode of Anxiety Bites. As always, if you would like to email the show, I will read it on a future listener email episode, and I would love for you to write in anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. Let me know if you have any questions or if you have any inspirational stories about your own recovery that you'd like to share with other people. Please give this show five stars. You can do that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell a friend. Talk about it on social media. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Jen Kirkman. And of course, everything else you need is going to be in the show notes. And remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.